Can I ask you uh, a favour? Uh, and, th- and that is that uh, I, I know that most of you know that I'm, I'm sick. Uh, I don't want you to look at this in regard to this sermon as a sympathy vote at all. Uh, you know, so I don't want you to be thinking, you know, I must take everything into consideration uh, because Nigel's not, not very good. Uh, what I do want you to do is that I do want you to uh, take it into consideration because it's the word of God. Uh, then on another side, uh, the expectations are that I probably, uh, w- you know, move from side to side and, you know, that sort of stuff. Well, uh, graciously, stuff for you this morning. I'm staying still, if that's okay. <laughs> so uh, if you've got a Bible, can you please turn to Psalm 8? Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, that's because you're in Wales, and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, how majestic is your name. Uh, in all the earth. It's great stuff, isn't it? Um, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but this is where we're going. So, um, Palm Sunday is the uh, Sunday before Easter, and the day that we uh, are supposed to celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the end of his earthly life. And we're going to look at that in a few uh, minutes in Matthew's Gospel. But before we do that, I want to look at Psalm 8. And the reason that I want to look at Psalm 8 and Matthew's story, uh, uh, Matthew's story of Jesus' triumphal uh, entry into Jerusalem, is is that Matthew quotes this psalm as part of his entry into Jerusalem. And the way that he quotes it has implications for the way that we think, the way that we understand the majesty of God, the way that we understand the majesty of Jesus, and how therefore we live. And and that's the main thing that I want us to see. I want us to first to see the majesty of God, so that's where we'll go first. And then I would like us to look at the majesty of Jesus and just see how different that is. And ask us some questions, how therefore we should display that majesty uh, to the world in which we're living. And we'll look at that and focus on that for a bit. But the way that I want to end up is that actually this majesty is extended from God to Jesus' son. It changes in his dimension and it finishes up with us where we are described as crowned with glory and honour. We are described as that. We display this majesty. So you can see it comes down. 
So that's what I want to do. I'm not pressing the buttons very well, so we'll, I should have gone there, but we'll go there first. So let's look at Psalm 8 then and work our way through it. The psalm uh, begins and it ends with its main point. It's brilliant. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then it finishes. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now why does he say that? Here it comes, folks. This is really important. So I want you to very concentrate. Concentrate in. Fleur, in. Got me? The reason he repeats it? We're thick. We didn't get it the first time. Okay? It's just this. We just need to be reminded of this over and over again. We're just a bit thick. So here we are, thick Nigel. You need to be reminded that the Lord is majestic and he's majestic in all the earth. The two words for, for Lord, O Lord, our Lord, are not the same in Hebrew. The first one is the translation of the, uh, the name Yahweh, uh, not a generic name for God, but a personal name of Israel's God built on the statement, I am who I am. So God named himself Yahweh. That is, he is the absolutely existing one, the one who simply is, who did not come into being and does not go out of being, never changes his being because he is an absolute being. He depends on nothing, nothing. Nothing else depends, as it were, and all else depends on him. He depends on nothing. Everything else depends on, on him. It's this name that is the majestic name in all the earth. You could write it like this. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is magnificent. Yahweh, the absolute existing one. And there is no place, no place in all the earth where God is not Yahweh. People think that's true, but he is not. He is Yahweh everywhere. He is everywhere and everything depends absolutely on him. He has no viable competitors. They think they compete, but they don't compete. They get nowhere near him. He is above all things, everywhere. He sustains all things, everywhere. He is the ground and the goal of all things, everywhere. He is greater, wiser, more beautiful and wonderful than everything, everywhere. O Yahweh, our Lord, you, the beautiful, wonderful one, The greatest one. How majestic is your name in all the earth? And that's the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm, the aim of the psalm, is literally to get you off your feet and to stand in awe of God. Now some of you need to do this. You need to get off your feet and stand in awe of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to get off your feet and stand in awe of God. Some of you do not know the majestic name in all the earth because the reason that you don't, you don't know 
intensely as the psalmist is that it does not get you off your feet. That's the idea of this. The idea of Psalm 8 is to get you on your feet and go, Lord, our Lord, how majestic. It's not, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's our Lord, ah, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's not just that you know there is a God who's majestic. It's that you get excited. That's why it's our Lord, our our Lord, our Lord, our Lord, our Lord. It's like, it's that. It's not good when you're on painkillers. You can't think. But it's like that. And that's the idea. I want to ask you this question. Do you know, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Or do you know this, oh Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name. That's the journey the psalmist wants to take you on. But between those verses 1 and 9, David wants us to see the marks of the majesty that will astound us. And the marks of the majesty are seen in children and human beings and Jesus So let's look at these things and let's work our way through them because I think there are some surprises to come. So God defeats his enemies through the weakness of babies. Ha! Babies! So this one is for the babies. We've sent the babies out. Shame, isn't it, really? But look at this. God's verse... God contrast. Look, verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Verse 1. What do we see? God's glory in its highest. He is the greatest of all beings. No one is stronger, wiser, greater. Verse 2, babies. There's the contrast. It is stark. Babies are weak. They have yet to gain wisdom. They have yet to gain knowledge. They are utterly dependent. In fact, what the psalmist is trying to say, now please understand this uh, in the context of, of writing this, is actually babies are quite insignificant. I know that you think that babies are lovely, but then they are. But in terms of comparison, they're, they're insignificant. So why are they here? Why do we go from a majestic God to babies? What are they doing? Well, it's clear what they're doing. They are defeating the enemies of God. Here's the purpose of a baby, to defeat the enemy of God. That's amazing, isn't it? Doesn't that give high status to babies? Well, I've only got this, thi- this little tiny thing, this little two-year-old or one-year-old or whatever. No, it's not how God sees it. God sees that they will, de- they will defeat the enemies of God. They are opening their mouths. They are saying or crying something. And whatever they are saying or crying is powerful enough to defeat God's enemy. That's mad. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you, that's God, have established strength. God is making what comes out of a baby's mouth so strong that when it comes out, it 
it, it defeats the enemy and the avenger. It's what it says. So, the mark of the majesty of God that David wants us to see is that God in his majesty and greatness stoops down to make a baby the means of his majestic triumph. Do you get the strange, do you let the strangeness of that sink in just a bit? It is just mad. Because you think you're strong, don't you? And God said, no, actually, this is the way that I'll do it. Let that sink in. Verse 2 says that God has foes, but God's God. When God has a foe, this is not a problem for him. He's God. He can simply snuff the enemy out if he wants to. He can make him go. He can sort of just put his finger on him and go, Poof, and he just will go, Poof. But what God, what God wants to do is not defeat his enemies with a foof in his finger and, and whatever. What he wants to do is that he wants to demonstrate how majestic he is. And so he says, I'm going to use babies to do that. I'm going to use a baby to, to do that. Hold this thought for a moment. What are we just moving into? Uh, Christmas. How did Jesus come? Oh, what did he come to do? Defeat his... Oh, fantastic. You are such clever people. (laughs) But it's more than that, as we'll come on to see, that actually the baby himself or herself has a role to play. So here it is, the peculiar mark of, of God's majesty is not that he just stoops down to listen or to take thought or care of an infant, but he makes them the means of a triumph. God conquers over his foes through the weakness of the weak, the speech of a baby. And when you think as God as warrior, and they, you think as you as strong, you think as you as capable, you think you as being in control, you think of you as the way that you are able to exert power. It's not the way that God does it. The way that God demonstrates his majesty is through weakness, through babies. And that is why God can use you, and that is how God uses you. It's how God uses you. So God's majesty is manifest through weakness, where strength comes. It's how it is displayed. You see this again a little bit later. We're going to come back to babies, because I haven't finished with babies yet. We're going to come back to them. They're going to put the application onto that in a bit. I want you to consider the second contrast in verses 3 to 8. In verse 3 3 to 4, David describes God as the majestic creator who makes stars with his fingers. It's like Play-Doh, isn't it? It's that sort of thing. I make stars as if they were a bit of plasticine. When I, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of, of him, the son of man that you care for him? 
And the point of these two verses, again, is that God is infinitely great and man, in comparison, is nothing. What is man that you care for him? You create the stars with your fingers, therefore man is very small compared with earth and stars and millions of stars, not to mention billions of stars. I think Phil had several goes at trying to tell us how many galaxies and whatever. So just as the, the contrast between God and children is vast, the distance between God and man is vast and great. So what is this tiny, seemingly insignificant, insignificant man doing here? Why does he come up in the middle of a psalm that says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Verse 6 tells us, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now that is absolutely astonishing. That actually God's demonstration of his authority, his rule and his power and his majesty is put in the hands of men and women. So now you have a responsibility (laughs) that is given to you and given to me. And yet man is like a baby. He's nothing compared with God. And compared with God's works, what works have we got? But let's just look at, uh, uh, just, uh, but just as God uses children to defeat his foes, God uses man to rule his glorious uh, creation. Let's just look at this. Verses 5 to 8. Verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep, all oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Extraordinary. I don't know whether you realize this yet, but you have been given much to display God. My dad used to use this sometimes as a little thing to, in regard to my behavior. And there's one thing that is it's the wrong motivation. But actually, it is the right motivation that actually you have been given an, an awesome responsibility for the care of the planet and what is on the planet and the way that you and I care demonstrates the majesty of God so here it is the peculiar mark of God's majesty God not only defeats his foes with the weakness of children but he rules the world with the weakness of men. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you make him ruler of, his, of your works? And what, is, what are children that you are mindful of them and yet you care for them and yet you make them conqueror of, the enemy, of, of your enemies? It all sounds rather strange, doesn't it? But we'll get to it in the end. 
Why is this? Don't miss this mark of God's majesty. It runs through the Bible. The glory of God's strength is greater because it is established through human weakness. That's the point. The glory of God's wisdom is greater because it is established through human foolishness. What man regards so much as weak, God makes the means of victory through it. What man regards as foolishness, God makes the means of triumph. It always will be this way. It isn't that we are the most capable people on this earth. We weren't, no. We we are the most incapable people on this earth that is dependent on a God that so God can use us, then he displays the majesty. It isn't about our prowess or what we know or what we can do or anything like that. It actually is about what we can't do and therefore what he can do. And until we get through this little battle in our heads and think that we can do it, we're going to fool ourselves. Because the majesty of God is displayed at a greatness when it comes through the weakness of people. So, when Jesus the God-man came into the world, this was the mark of his majesty. God's strength is magnified through human weakness. God's victory is achieved through childlike lowliness. God's rule is established not through power, but by servanthood. So turn with me then to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we'll walk through it, and then we'll come back to the the children thing and the Jesus thing. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus draws near to Jerusalem and he arranges to enter the city riding on a donkey. In verse 2, he gives the disciples the instructions, go to the village in the front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey. He's tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them back to me. Why did he want to ride a donkey into Jerusalem? Why did he not want to come with an army on a white horse, which, of course, he will return with? Why? Well, one of the reasons is that uh, he was fulfilling a prophetic word in Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He chose a donkey because he was the king of Israel and because he bore the mark of what would be now a new description of majesty. Ah, Majesty is changing. Once God had been far off, once God had been locked into a temple, once it had been smoke and fire, once it had been heavens moving and thunder and lightning, and once everybody was in awe of God, and now God would come, and he would come in a different way, and he would enter in on a donkey, and he would say, this is now majesty. This is majesty. He would manifest his kingship now on a donkey. 
His magnificence would be displayed on the lowest of all animals. This is the mark of majesty. And the crowds come out. Think about these crowds. The crowds come out and the crowds are being told from the depths of there that, that the Messiah's coming. That the one, that is, the king of Israel's are coming. And you can imagine from the streets they're running. They've yet to see him. And they're running and they're running and they're telling each other, the Messiah's coming. If we can get to this point at this time, you will see the Messiah. And it's like almost waiting for Will and whatever's wedding. And when they come round the corner and you've got your little flag waving, they're on a donkey from Blackpool. So you can imagine that verse 9 bursts out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then they must turn, but why is he on a donkey? Hosanna to him on the donkey. The king of, why is he on a donkey? It, it was, this would have been how they would have been absolutely bewildered by it. They're shouting one thing, but they are absolutely bewildered by the fact that he's come. Well, we, what, we put a palm leaf down, Palm Sunday, but he's on a donkey. And you can imagine the confusion in the crowd. But in the crowd would have been, right at the edge, would have been Roman soldiers, would have been the scribes and the Pharisees that he was now about to confront in just a few minutes later. It's the application for the children. He was going to meet them. And there they would have been. And what would their expectation is? What did the Romans think when a Roman soldier and and a great emperor came into the city? They were expecting something magnificent. The scribes and the Pharisees were expecting something magnificent. But God and Jesus say, we will now demonstrate to you what majesty looks like. Anointing, if you like, calling, gifting, is always on a donkey. Hear me, folks. Hear me. When you see these guys that have got private jets and all that sort of stuff, it is not majesty on a donkey, is it? God displays his kingship on an ass. That's how he does it. So, he then takes his majesty to the temple. And Jesus, with amazing authority, enters the temple. Verse 13, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What is he doing there? He's taking this majesty now to the temple and saying, Hey, look, my majesty has been lost. What does he say? He doesn't say, The gold's missing. What does he say? He says, Prayer's missing. Where is prayer best done? On our knees. On our knees. Men and women on our knees prostrate before God, calling on God. Not, not gold. He's not saying, blow me, the, the, the Romans have nicked the pots. He says, no, there's no prayer going on. There's no humbling going on here. Majesty has been lost because majesty is humble. It's not up here. So we go through. And then he sees 
at the edge, the blind and the lame, and they come to him, and he looks at them, and he goes out to them. What does he? Everyone needs compassion. So here he comes again. Majesty is demonstrated what with compassion. This is a different way of displaying the majesty of God. Now he's, 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 he's in there. They are seeing this, this saviour that is, that is showing majesty on an ass. He's demonstrating how majesty is displayed in us by, by being a prayerful people. He has compassion. He said, these are the marks of majesty. Now, I, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but children are not blind or stupid. You can always tell this because they always, they always tell you what you think you were saying in secret back to you, don't you? They always hear something that they're not supposed to hear. It weren't, you know, and you, why were you discussing that, mommy or daddy? And they see what's happening here. And they, they see what's happening and they have heard their parents shouting. And they have seen and heard what has gone on in the temple and what has gone on with the blind and that sort of stuff. So they think we'll shout in verse 15 the same stuff. So suddenly the children start to shout. And the children shout, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David. And these children are calling out to Jesus. They're shouting to him and at him and in front of everybody else. Nobody else is shouting. The children are shouting. Nobody else is saying anything about the lime, the, the lime and the, the, the lime and the lame. No, the lame. You don't have the pills that I'm on, I tell you. The, Kelly said to me, I'm just going to break it. Kelly said to me, I'm only giving you half your pills because you talk rubbish when you're beyond... <laughs> I'm just reeling that even some of them are talk rubbish. Anyway, can you imagine here that the blind, nobody is acknowledging what has happened to the blind and the lame. Nobody. But the children notice it. The children go, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, this causes a problem for those wonderfully dressed people called the chief priests and scribes that actually are dressed in majesty yeah they've got the funny hat on and the posh stuff and the peculiar shoes been to Debenhams 25% less 10% or whatever it was this way everybody's had one of those have you noticed I don't know whether you ever noticed this have you ever noticed all the glitzy stuff that comes out for Christmas do you ever wonder whether they just bring it out every year no well, anyway, I want you to imagine that the glitzy stuff in Debenhams is like the scribes and the Pharisees, okay? They are sparkling. They are sparkling. So there's a little bit of clash here when Jesus is claiming to be king of kings and he's on a donkey. He's not coming in the right attitude, is he, really? And they think it's outrageous uh, for Jesus to hear this kind of acclamation and they they uh, not to stop them or not to correct them so they say to jesus in verse 16 do you hear what they are saying this is one of those loaded statements isn't it what they mean was we we know that you can hear what these are saying but we can't imagine why you have not stopped them since you are most certainly not 
the Messiah. Do something about it, will you? And Jesus' answer is crystal clear in its simplicity. I think it's quite jaw-dropping, actually, in connection with Psalm 8, because firstly, he says this. When they say, do you hear what these are saying? He goes, yeah. It's like one of those things when your dad goes, mm. You know, when mm means so much. Do you hear what these are saying, Jesus? They are calling you the son of David. They are calling you the bringer of deliverance. They are calling you the bringer of salvation. They are saying that you are the king of Israel. Do you hear this? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole lot of wording in this because he's saying, yeah, I hear. I approve. I receive what they're saying. They are not mistaken. They are not blaspheming. They are not foolish. They just seem foolish to you, O stupidly dressed one. (laughs) O wise and important one. They just seem so ignorant, don't they, these children? They, They look so weak, and to you they're so insignificant. And then he says to them, imagine this moment, he turns to them. He in his humble dressed stuff. And he says, have you ever read Psalm 8 verse 2? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. (laughs) Oh. It is making strange noises. Can you turn it, Phil? Okay, I'll, I'll go turn. Specifically, he actually cites for the theologians, now I have to just mention this, we're just going to have a break here, because apparently I'm no longer allowed to say uh, Phil's mom or Mrs. Harmon in sermons. So, Margaret, <laughs> this bit here is for you. Because like me, you're a good strict Baptist and you like some meat in the sermon. So Margaret, if you're there, here we go. Specifically, he cites the Greek version of Psalm 8.2. The Hebrew version says, Out of the mouth of infants you will establish strength. Remember that? The Greek version says, Out of the mouth of infants you have prepared praise. In other words... The Hebrew version doesn't tell us how the babies use their mouths to establish strength and silence the enemy. It just says, out of the mouth, infants have established strength to still the enemy. But the Greek version that Jesus cites ventures to give us the answer to the question, how these babies will silence the enemy. How do babies silence the enemy? They praise God. They praise God. Now, praise is extremely interesting. I think it's interesting uh, even more so in children. Because I think they see things that you and I, oh, adults, are too grown up to notice any longer. We see why praise is important. Because in 2 Chronicles 20, Josaphat defeats Ammon and Moab by worship and praise only. So battles can be won. But why did Jesus cite the psalm? Two things. 
happen when he quotes the psalm. First of all, it comes true. (laughs) It comes true. The enemy are silenced. The chief priests and their gear and the scribes say no more. The day belongs to the children. And what they say holds sway. What the chief priests and the scribes say falls to the ground. Jesus makes clear that this psalm is coming true in his ministry. God is defeating his enemies through the weakness of children and men. The king was on a donkey. The triumph came from the mouth of a baby. And this is the way that it will be to Calvary. And this is the way that it will be until he returns. The kingship of Jesus... The messiahship of Jesus, the power and the lordship of Jesus will always triumph through weakness. Now hear this. Something else happened. Jesus cites Psalm 8 verse 2. Out of the mouth of of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Just added that in because it's what it is. The meaning of the psalm was clearly praise to God. These children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Their praise was directed at Jesus. Jesus knew that. He knew exactly that. The chief and scribes, scribes, chief priests and scribes knew that. So it's jaw-dropping in the fact that when these children... Sorry, let me just read that again. Um, The chief priests and scribes knew that. So it's jaw-dropping when Jesus said, I will tell you what's happening here in Psalm 8 verse 2. God is being praised by these children. When these children praise me as Messiah, the son of David, they're praising God because of who I am. The children have, have seen what the scribes and the Pharisees have not seen. Now, I want to suggest to you that that is true of children. I want to suggest to you that children see far more of the incredible, majestic God and Jesus than we give them credit to. And here is a magnificent incident of people who have known the Scriptures from birth, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the only people that see it is the children. I want to suggest to you that your son or your daughter or your little nephew or whatever is actually more open to the Spirit of God than you give them credit to. And that's true about all children. That actually when Jesus says, let the children come to me, why does he let the children come to me? Because he knows that in their simplicity, they are open to seeing who God is and seeing what God can do. And why does he say that you should be childlike? Because you have lost what they have. That's why he says to you, you should be like them. Not we, not they should be like us, but that we should be like them. Because children have an ability to see what we do not, what we're unable to see. So why should we be praying for the children? Because God shows them magnificent stuff about himself. That's why. They just see stuff. And isn't it true? How many of us, come on parents, have been put to death, and if you like, put to the sword by real words of wisdom from our four-year-old? Now I'm just going to embarrass my daughter a little bit because I know that you shouldn't do this. 
But but we we're going to do it anyway because and the, the the thing is that if I try and run out of the service anyway, I can't do it, so I might as well die. My daughter prophesied in meetings at four. She would bring uh, directional and encouraging stuff into the service. I used to say this, and I say this with all the children. I used to say, if Rachel comes, then don't let her share with me. Then let her go and speak to somebody else. So she'd come up and she would share and she would do this. Why was that happening? Because there were 150 other people that actually God wanted to speak through and they were all in their little boxes thinking their own little worlds and God said, I want to come through. So he said, okay, I'll use a child to do it. It was challenging on two things. One, one was this, that it was a child that did it. Secondly, it was God. What was he doing? Displaying his majesty. So let me move on. We moved to Rugeley. And we've got a couple in front of us. And maybe it's something that the children should come and do with me a bit later. We've got a couple in front of us who were very sick. And we were praying for them. And Callie said to me this. She said, do you mind if I get the children in? Well, we had prayed some magnificent theological tombs over these people. We had prayed Genesis. It was like Phil Harmon going on one of his, you know, Genesis to Revelation prayers. You know, and Lord, by the way, do you you not remember when you wrote in Lamentations? You know, what? And so he's, Phil's, they, they were all going on one. So, so here they are, you know, it's like our prayer meetings, you know, we, you know, the reason that they're an hour and a half is that that's Phil's time for prayer, we have the five minutes afterwards. (laughs) Is there, I hope you're still listening, Margaret, have a word with your son. So anyway, anyway, this, this is what was happening. They were, there was all sorts of praying going on. It was magnificent. But they still remain sick. Callie brought the children in. And I don't know whether you know like this. Children wipe snot on your leg. You know, that sort of stuff. They start fiddling and stroking with things that they shouldn't. And we just said to them, would you like to pray for, for Gertie? It was the lady. So the kids come up and they sort of, yeah, they do. Dear Lord Jesus, please, please heel, Gertie, and then the finger goes up the nose. And, and you can sense everybody out there is thinking, what on earth are you doing here? Here was the thing. Was Gertie healed with the theological prayers of the great leaders of Rugeley Community Church? No. Did the snot-bearing children were lacking in concentration and ability and wisdom and knowledge pray, and was Gertie healed? Yes, immediately. What happened? The majesty of God was proved to the church yet again that God works through the loneliness of people. I hope you've got it. Click. So, what was happening in this situation? The ultimate me- meaning of Psalm, Psalm, oh dear, Psalm, Palm Sunday is the same as Psalm 8. That God is majestic, but now majesty has a name and a face. 
The name is Jesus and this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Jesus crucified will look foolish and weak, but isn't it wonderful in majesty? The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25. How do we know what God's majesty looks like? Majesty, worship his majesty unto Jesus. Be. Now then, what do you think that you're looking at? What do you think? You're looking at a crucified one. One on a donkey. One who says to the children, come. This is the majesty of God. The majesty of God is displayed and has a face in this one person, Jesus. You know, sometimes we think, oh, majesty, it's triumphal. Yes, it is triumphal stuff. But it is in the face and the demonstration of one person. Click. But majesty is also seen in God's creation. The vision of Psalm 8 is that God is majestic beyond words. Yes? His majesty is manifested his son. Yes? And the ways of his son. But my application today is that I would like to honour what God honours. Now I hope you will agree from this psalm that this truth follows. You cannot worship and glorify the majestic God while treating God's creation with contempt, whatever colour, whatever age, whatever part of creation they might be in. I'm just going to say some things here. He probably will get me into trouble, but let's go for it. You cannot starve an aged person in hospital or in a home and glorify the majesty of God. They are crowned with glory and honour. You cannot abuse the unborn person and glorify the majesty and, 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 and glorify the majesty of God. You cannot. They are crowned with glory and honour. You cannot gas Jewish people en masse and glorify the majesty of God. You cannot call a black human being a slave and then say that we glorify the majesty of God. So this person is crowned with glory and honour. You cannot treat human pregnancy like an inconvenience because it doesn't fit in with your work and lifestyle. You cannot do that and glorify the majesty of God. You cannot treat the mixing even of human races, South Africa, as if it's a plague and then turn up at church and glorify the majesty of God. The next time somebody asks you, why are you against abortion? Try answering this. God is majestic, 
beyond words and his majesty is manifest in the glory of his supreme creation, a person. If someone asks you, why are you willing to stay in that neighborhood when the value of your house is plummeting? Why not try and say, God is majestic beyond words and his, and his majesty is manifest in the glory of a person, the human being. And then read to them Psalm 8 and see how God says that, and what God says about his people. Click. Verse 2 is a remarkable verse. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This verse says that God has adversaries, enemies, people who are revengeful and the verse says that his adversaries are going to be stilled, silenced and made to cease and this verse means that God will triumph over his out of his adversaries, with what comes out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, who were we then to dismiss them and to say that they do not have a life? How is it that what comes out of the mouth of nursing babies can, be, can put the adversary of God to naught? Verse 5 gives us an answer. Sorry, verse 4 does. What is man? What is man? What is man? And then he tells us, verse 5, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you crowned him with glory and honor. What is man? You made him. Not only did you make him, you made him a little lower than a heavenly being. You crowned him with glory and honor. You did this. I am. You are. The unborn child is made by God. You made him. And secondly, these things whom God made are radically different from the animals. That's why it tells us in those verses that we are to rule over those animals. And then it says that we are a little less than God or a little less than angels. The word is actually Elohim there, which actually can mean God. And he answers that thirdly. And he said, look, you're a little less than God. You've been made a little less than God and crowned with glory and majesty. Now connect that importance to the out of the mouth of babies you've established strength because of your foes. Why is it that what comes out of the mouth of these little humans has such strength to overcome the enemy? The answer is Job 31, verse 15. Did he not make me in the womb, make him my servant, and the same one fashion us in the womb? The reason that God wants to use them is that he has made them. He wants to use that in which he has made. It is his right to use them. It is not our right to take them. It is his right because he made them. They are made in the womb like no other being, a little less than an angel. I know you call them your little angel. And they are made in the womb by God and crowned with glory 
and majesty. In other words, their supreme place in creation under God or under angels is profound, even at the stage of being a baby. When they open their mouth and they cry and they coo and they babble as a human being, do you not look at them and wonder at the majesty of God? Do you not look? Do you not see? Why? You look at them. The, uh, the whole idea of this thing is to do two things. One, to wonder at the majestic ability of God in creation and to see the majesty of what will be in lowliness. That's the idea. We're looking at the king on a donkey. We're looking at the majestic creation with the lowliness of a child. When it coos, it's, the whole idea of a coup is to bring you to praise of God. It's the idea. The idea of a babble and a runny nose and all those things that keep you awake in the middle of the night are there to design so that you will praise God. God does not wait for a baby to be rational and independent to ascribe to him glory and majesty. No, glory and majesty was there in the womb. In the womb, God is seen and has praised through this. Let the adversaries, therefore, of God take note and tremble. If they treat God's supreme creation with contempt, let me say this, you will lose. You will be judged. You will be silenced. You cannot worship and glorify the majestic God while treating his supreme creation with content. Beware of your treatment of the unborn child. Let me just talk to a few of you personally. The unborn child is crowned with glory and honor just as much as the born child. There is no difference. Some of you have known the agony of an unborn child. I want you to know this. Your unborn child was crowned with glory and honor. The born child is crowned with glory and honor. This week we placed in the rain in a place far from home in South Sea, the body of Olochkuwu Nokocha. Her little body was affected by a sinful and fallen world. She was born and she died. But of all the time that she was known by God... God never ever thought, this was not how I planned it to be. How did he see her? He saw her crowned with glory and honor. And some of you have known that experience that Lewis and Kate, what about my child? My child is this, crowned, crowned with glory and honor. This is how God sees it. 
God sees it. How do I see this? Is it agony? Is it difficult? Is it hard? It is immense. It is so hard. What do you say to people? I don't know what you say to people. But do you know what? God knows what to say. So he says, they're crowned with glory and honour. So some of you have grown up. Some of you have become teenagers. Some of you have grown rather old. Some of you have had many friends. Some of you have not had many friends. Some of you have left hate behind you and anger behind you. Some of you even have that right now. Some of you have issues to deal with. Why? Is this an issue of forgiveness? No. This is an issue of saying to people that, that what, you, what you are arguing with is not flesh and blood, but actually the person is crowned with glory and honor. They might not love God. They might hate God. They might not like what you like. But actually, how does God see them? Crowned with glory and honor. Now I want you to stand. I'd like you to have a look around at each other. I know that charismatics do this. I want you to just face and look at each other. I want you to look at each other at at a reasonable amount of time. Because what you're looking at right now is not Steve Hawkins or Phil Harmon at all. You're not looking at, at Bill or Jenny Hogg. Or any of the any folk like that, you're looking with a person that is crowned with glory and honour. So, I want you to appreciate what God has given you. I want you to do that. You don't have to appreciate me, but I, because I know that God has crowned me with glory and honour. I've worked this one through. But some of you, before you go tonight, this morning, need to go and settle some things. Why? Because you have questioned the glory and honor of the person. (laughs) Don't let that go. Amongst us is an incredible work of the majesty of God. You are it. You are it. How does God display his majesty? He displays it through, the light, through, through uh, his son and through you. Through you. <laughs> so what I want you to do is I want us to do this. Now, but you can't do it to me because I shall just die. Is that I'd like you to go now and have a hug fest. 
This is like a charismatic hug fest. So Phil Harmon will be itching to sing a song and he's probably told Phil that he's got nine. I don't need to do that. What I'd like you to do now is before you go to coffee, I'd like you to go and have a hug fest and I'd like you to go and thank some people for who they are because God sees them as crowned with glory. That's so, okay, this is the ministry time. The ministry time is just a hug fest. Okay, so hug fest begin.